0: WE ARE CONTINUING OUR STUDY IN THE GOSPEL OF MATTHEW, THIS GREAT BOOK ON THE LIFE OF CHRIST. WE'RE GOING THROUGH VERSE BY VERSE. AND ONE OF THE CHALLENGES OF GOING THROUGH A BOOK OF THE BIBLE VERSE BY VERSE IS IT BECOMES VERY OBVIOUS WHEN YOU'RE TRYING TO SKIP THE HARD PARTS. AND TO HIS CREDIT, PASTOR ED HAS NOT DONE THAT. INSTEAD, HE HAS SAVED THAT FOR ME TODAY. (laughs) OUR PASSAGE IS MATTHEW CHAPTER 5, VERSES 27 THROUGH 32. You can find it on page 810 in the blue Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I would encourage you to uh, open it up just to make sure that I'm not making all this stuff up as we go along. Today, we're going to be talking about lust, adultery, and divorce. So fasten your seatbelts. We are going to see how Jesus confronted the people of his day and our day with God's standard on these issues. One thing we have to acknowledge is that it is a tendency that we all have to relax God's laws when they conflict with our desires, which is exactly what Jesus warned us against in Matthew 5, 19 when he said, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And so that's what's in store for us. Some of you may know that Carme and I have four children, Hannah, Jonathan, and Michael and Elena. (laughs) Normally, I don't use my kids uh, in a sermon illustration unless they've done something really, really bad. Uh, But this morning, I'm I'm happy to make an exception because I think it fits our passage so well. But you should know that I actually have this child's permission uh, to use him or her. And uh, just like Pastor Ed, using one of my kids in a sermon illustration costs me $10. When this child was younger, he or she hated to lose. And I mean absolutely hated to lose. He or she would scream so loudly, the cries of anguish would be so painful that Carme and I wondered if the child was actually mortally wounded. And this child's dislike, hatred of losing, coupled with the frequency with which he or she lost, encouraged him or her to develop a system of rules that would prevent them from losing, that would guarantee they won almost every game they played. Your family may be familiar with some of these rules. Uh, One of them was the I wasn't ready rule. They may have looked ready. They may have even said they were ready. But if later they realized they weren't ready, they weren't ready, and that's a rule violation. Another one was I don't like what just happened and I don't think it's fair. And I always thought that one was very arbitrarily applied. And of course, there was you know, um, no opportunity to rebut that. Another one that, uh, that this child made up was the, you just scored a point, and I don't like it. That, that was simply that. You scored, I don't like it. Now, naturally, all of these rules meant that you had to do a do-over, or in the case of really gross violations in his or her mind, a certain number of points was simply awarded to them, usually just enough to make sure that they won. Now, over time, in our family, these rules came to be known as Michael's Rules. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) Sorry, dude. Michael, if that is his real name, (laughs) came up with these rules in order to make sure that he would win. As one of the younger kids in the family, he faced an uphill battle uh, in in winning any of the games. And to his credit, it actually did help him win. Although over time he found it more difficult to uh, find people to play with. But let's not judge the lad too harshly. Because I think you and I are guilty of the same thing. Perhaps especially in the spiritual arena, where we run across a law of God that conflicts with our desires, and we look for a way to kind of adjust that law, to modify it so that we can win, so that we can think we're obeying even when we're not. And you know, the sad truth is, I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of other people, even here at Moody Church, sometimes with very tragic ends. And yet it's a constant temptation even though we know that God's laws are for our eternal good, and God gives us those laws to maximize our pleasure, at times they are very, very hard to obey. And so we look for ways to relax them. We, we think they need some kind of modification. Maybe a little, maybe a lot. Take for example the command to love your neighbor. Now with some neighbors, that's asking a bit much, amen? And so we look and think, well, I don't know that I could actually pull that off. So we relax God's laws a little bit. And so for some people, the command to love your neighbor eventually becomes, don't kill him. And that's a fine commandment. But it's not all that God requires of us. And so Jesus dealt with the same sinful tendency in his day. And in our passage this morning, he gives us two examples of how people did that and then tells us how to avoid that. And our first example is found in chapter five, verses 27 through 30. Looking for the verse. Sorry, I think I switched something up here. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's a very, very stunning thing. So the solution to the first example of relaxing God's law is to guard your heart, not just your body. Guard your heart and not just your body. What was the command or the law? Well, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, thou shall not commit adultery. And they got that part right. That is what the seventh commandment said. It was designed by God to protect marriage from one of its greatest violations. And do you realize that That God created marriage in part so that we would know just how much God loves us. More than any human relationship, the marriage relationship shows us what it's like to know God. The joy, the love, the intimacy, the security of that relationship. And sex within marriage is a gift from God that uniquely and powerfully expresses the couple's love for one another. It was designed by God to bond a wife and a husband together. A complete giving over of of oneself emotionally and physically to the one that you have committed to live with for the rest of your life. It is beautiful. It is sacred. It is precious. And it is to be cherished and protected by everyone. And it was God's idea. It was his idea. His good gift. And God must have Known how this gift was going to be abused and misused throughout human history. And I find it remarkable that knowing in advance how this gift was going to be abused, that God still felt it was so important to give us this gift. That really says something about it. You you should be happy that I'm not God for a lot of reasons. But I've actually said before, if I was God, I probably would not give the gift of sex because I would look and see how how much pain it causes in the world, how much suffering it causes. And I thought, well, maybe I would make procreation the result of some kind of secret handshake or a high five or something. And then I thought, athletes will be getting pregnant left and right, so that can't be it. (laughs) And adultery is a horrible betrayal of that sacred gift of God. And while the world downplays the consequences of sex without marriage, including adultery, the consequences of it are no less severe. And I want to read a couple of quotes from two victims of adultery. When my husband had an affair with another woman, I watched his eyes glaze over when we ate dinner together. And I heard him singing to himself without me. He was courteous and polite. He enjoyed being at home. But in the fantasy of his home, I was not the one who sat opposite him and laughed at his jokes. He didn't want to change anything. He liked his life. The only thing he wanted to change was me. The next quote is from a husband. And while we don't condone or agree with everything he says, his words reveal the pain of adultery. I hate you for cheating on me. I hate you for reducing it to the word cheating, as if this were a card game and you sneaked a look at my hand. Who came up with the term cheating, anyway? A cheater. Someone who thought liar was too harsh. Someone who thought devastator was too emotional. I hate you. This isn't about slipping an extra $20 of Monopoly money. These are our lives. You went and broke our lives. You are so much worse than a cheater. You killed something, and you killed it when its back was turned. There is healing in the Lord. There's healing in the Lord for adultery. There's healing in the Lord for divorce. But he loves us so much, he wants to spare us from that in the first place. He never wants us to experience it. So scripture repeatedly reminds us to not fall into this sin. It warns us against this sin. Take a look at Proverbs chapter 6. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. In fact, in the Old Testament, the punishment for adultery was death. That is how much God sought to protect marriage. So how did they weaken the law? They weakened the law not by rewriting it, not by proclaiming its opposite. They even kept the death penalty for it. The way that they weakened it is they focused on the act of adultery and not the sinful heart behind it or the sins that lead to it. In this case, their error was they followed the letter of the law, but they completely violated the heart of it or the spirit of it. Here's an important principle I want us to know. The heart of the law reveals the heart of God. And your response reveals your heart towards God. Let me say that again. The heart of the law reveals the heart of God. Your response reveals your heart towards God. Imagine a car ride with two young brothers in the back seat. And one is annoying the other mile after mile after mile. Finally, the exasperated father yells, Stop touching your brother! Then what happens after a few miles down the road? The one who's doing the touching. He comes as close as he possibly can to his brother's face. Did I touch you? No. Did I touch you there? No. Did I touch you now? No. I know this happens. I've seen it on television. (laughs) You can see the foolishness of obeying the letter of the Father's command and completely violating the spirit of it. And so then imagine that that father is asked, hey, how do your sons get along? He says, well, actually they hate each other's guts, but they never touch each other. Oh, you must be so proud. (laughs) It's easy to laugh at that example because we've seen it probably many times. But Jesus obviously wasn't laughing at what he saw. What they missed was God's heart behind the law, his desire for us to truly love one another. In the Old Testament law, In Leviticus 19, 18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what does that look like? What does it look like to love your neighbor? It doesn't look like coming as close as possible to hurting them and then just stopping short. Loving your neighbor means that you're looking for ways to bless them. You're looking for what is in their best interest. And so they weakened God's law because they took his heart completely out of it. They left out the command to love. And so how did Jesus correct them? How did Jesus define the law? Well, in chapter 5, verses 27 through 28, Jesus says this, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter. And he equates lustfully looking at someone as already committing adultery with them in In your heart. Why is that? Because the command not to commit adultery was not an open invitation to let your sinful desires run wild as long as you didn't do the act. It was a command that was subsumed under the greater command to love your neighbor as yourself. And they missed it. They completely blew it. Desiring pursuing, or engaging in sexual relationships outside of marriage is not love. It is not love. It is never love. It is sin. And you are leading yourself and the one that you're with away from the Lord, not towards him. It really is that simple. And what Jesus is saying here is that if you look upon someone with sexual intent, and allow or nurture your imagination along those lines, you have already committed adultery with that person in your heart. And that is not a little thing. And on judgment day, the excuse, well, I never touched him, I never touched her, will not help you. Do you realize that God has never been interested in simply the external? He's always been interested in the heart. Why? Because that's who you and I really are. That's who we really are. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. In other words, it comes out of you because it's already inside you. And if in the mercy of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit it's not in you, it will not come out of you when the opportunity arises. Lust is an offense because. It reduces a divine image bearer, someone in whom we are to see the character of God, into an object of of selfish, destructive, and God-mocking sinfulness. It is a perversion of God's good gift of sexual intimacy. That's why it's so bad. Now mind you, God is, is not condemning the appreciation of the beauty of his creation, including men and women, right? It doesn't mean that every time you see someone you think is remotely attractive, you're supposed to snap your neck and look in the other direction. It doesn't mean as you walk through life, you're supposed to just keep your, keep your eyes on the ground just in case you see someone that's, that's attractive. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So there are beautiful people everywhere. I mean, we can't just lock them all up. <laughs> so that's not what God is telling us. I mean, do you think Carme was sinning the first time she saw me? And she said, Hey, that chubby pastor's kind of (laughs) cute. Those are her exact words. That may not be a great example. But but here is why lust is so sinful and so unloving. Because it cares nothing about the person you are lusting after. Do you care about the marriage, present or future? of the man or the woman that you're lusting after? No. Do you care about their walk with the Lord? You don't. Do you care about the soul of this son or daughter of God, or is the only thing you care about their body and what you want to do with it? That is what lust is, and it is a perversion. And so the question this command should elicit from us is not simply, how do I avoid adultery but how do I truly love my neighbor? It means not just controlling your lust, but it also means being very careful not to arouse the lust of others. And what you say, and what you do, and what you wear, that is one way that we love them. So you may be thinking right now, Pastor, you're telling me I shouldn't lust. Okay, that's good. I've uh, I've never heard that in church before. Thank you for your insight. First of all, watch the sarcasm. I don't like that. (laughs) I a little tired of that. Second, it's important to know why lust is bad so that we can learn to hate it. We have to learn to hate lust. And I confess that, that I am still learning to truly hate lust. Hate it for what it really is. In defining the law, Jesus emphasized the importance of keeping it. In verses 29 and 30, he says this, If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus is telling us two very important things here. He is telling us, you should stop at nothing in your battle against sin because heaven and hell hang in the balance. You and I must stop at nothing in our battle against sin because heaven and hell hang in the balance. Think about Jesus' words. He actually says that if you find your right eye a source of sin in your life, you are better off if you were to gouge it out of your head and throw it away. And if you find your right hand leads you to sin, it may be necessary to cut it off in order to get into heaven. So here's my question. Would you do it? If you found that your right eye consistently led you into sin, Would you have it surgically removed in order to live a holy life? Personally, I would want to try an eye patch for a while. See if maybe we could get things under control that way. But you know what? That attitude won't cut it. That attitude will simply not cut it. The questions are how badly do you want to be free from sin? How badly have you grown to hate sin? How tired are you of falling into the same pattern of sin and falling for the same temptation over and over again? How strongly do you long for intimacy with God, for the freedom and the joy that comes from walking with him? If your answer is, well, not that much, not that much, then you're in trouble. Most of you know that Jesus is not speaking literally here. He is not literally telling us to gouge out your right eye and to cut off your right hand. Incidentally, why the right eye and the right hand? Because they represent what is best about us. And I have to say that as a left-handed person, I think it's about time they got what was coming to them. (laughs) But one of the ways that we know that Jesus is not speaking literally is because if you follow his commands, literally, they don't work. They don't work. And Jesus was a lot smarter than that. If my right eye were particularly lustful and I had it surgically removed, I'm confident that my left eye could make up for the extra workload. You don't need two eyes to lust any more than you need two hands to steal. But before we get too comfortable knowing that Jesus wasn't being literal, keep in mind that he was still being deadly serious. He was still being deadly serious. The truth is that we will have very little chance defeating lust or any temptation if we play with it. If we are half-hearted in our battle against sin, we will lose. And I suspect that every single one of us knows that from experience. Sin is like a malignant tumor. If it is not removed from the body, the entire body will die. And you know, there are so many practical implications of what Jesus is talking about. Instead of the right eye or the right hand, it could be a relationship that you're in. It could be your job that's causing you to sin. A habit, a hobby, a subscription, a possession, something in your life that needs to be removed because it is leading you to sin. And for you, contemplating that maybe more painful than the thought of actually gouging out your right eye or cutting off your hand. And yet that may be exactly what Jesus is calling you to do. You may recall the true story that Pastor Lutzer told a few years ago about a husband who had left his wife and he was with another woman. And Pastor Lutzer said, you need to go back to your wife. And his response was, I've been in the desert for years and I have finally found an oasis. And what you're asking me to do is to go back to the desert. And the answer is yes. Immediately. Do it now. Cut off that relationship. Gouge it from you and throw it away. With God's help, run back and restore your marriage. Why? Why would you go from an oasis to a desert? Because heaven and hell hang in the balance. That's what Jesus said. Why would he say it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell? Can a Christian wind up in hell for failing to obey this commandment? No. No, the Bible teaches that once a person is born again, he or she cannot be unborn again. Romans 8, 29 and 30 contains what has been called the golden chain of salvation. It says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This golden chain of salvation. Salvation, God's word clearly says, is a work of the Lord from start to finish. It is God's work in our lives. But a mark of the genuineness of a Christian, whether he or she is truly a follower of Jesus Christ, is that they will persevere with Christ until the end. And so what is Jesus telling us here? I believe he is warning us to make sure that we truly are his people. That we truly are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one way to test that is how we respond to his commandments. Remember, the heart of the law reveals the heart of God. And your response to God's law reveals your heart towards God. So is your response to Jesus' teaching on adultery and lust to say, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I don't need to take such drastic actions to be obedient. If that's how you're thinking, that you need to understand something, that's not just your mouth that's saying it. It's your heart. And that attitude, that perspective, is not characteristic of someone who's a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is characteristic of someone who doesn't know him. And to put it bluntly and very sadly, that attitude is characteristic of someone who is on their way to hell. That's what Jesus is saying. And yet people with that perspective can still worship the Lord. Listen to Jesus' words to religious leaders in his day. It's found in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. You hypocrites, Jesus said. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. And that's exactly what they were. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. Not because you'll lose your salvation if you sin, but because the true condition of your heart is revealed by your response to God's law. So the solution to the first example of relaxing God's law was to guard your heart and not just your body. The solution to the second example is to guard your marriage, not just your marital status. In verses 31 through 32, Jesus says this, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's serious stuff. So what was the command? Well, they got the first command right. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's what it said. They completely missed the heart of it by partial credit for identifying the actual command. This time, you have to wonder if they were even trying. I mean, they were so far off the mark. Jesus deals with this very same issue in Matthew chapter 19. And in verse three of that chapter, you see just how far off they were. They twisted the commandment by asking Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? I mean, what a misguided question. And yet, they were serious. There was a school of thought in Jesus' day that that taught that a man could divorce his wife for basically any reason. If she wasn't all that good a cook, or even if you'd found someone that was more attractive. Now, the wife didn't have these rights, and so she was quite vulnerable, and you can see how that arrangement wouldn't have led to a very happy marriage. Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, contains the command that Jesus is referring to. It's actually not a very easy passage to interpret, even if you got a C plus in Hebrew, as I did. So in other words, don't, don't try this at home. Don't try this at home. But basically what we're going to see is a very long if-then statement. Right? And there's a lot of qualifications. They, 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 Moses wanted it to be clear. But it's a very long if-then statement found in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, here's the big if, if then he finds no favor in his, she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Wow. Okay. So they got out of that, so it's okay to divorce your wife for any reason at all, right? The actual command in that passage is simple. If you have divorced your wife, and in the meantime, she remarries, because the assumption would be that she would remarry, you are not allowed to take her back as your wife. That is forbidden. It was designed, along with giving the wife a certificate of divorce, so her situation wasn't ambiguous, it was designed to protect the wife and to guard against divorce. That's really the whole of it. Divorce was to be seen as far more important than they did. So how did they weaken the law? Well, they weakened the law very simply by ignoring God's purpose for marriage. They were more interested in protecting their marital status, that is, to be married, than they were interested in protecting their marriage. Their focus wasn't to find the heart of God in this matter. Their focus was to find what was legal and what they could get away with. They viewed God's law as a restraint on their freedom. And like a lawyer, they were looking for a loophole to see what they could get away with. And it's a temptation that you and I face today. If the heart of the law really does reveal the heart of God, then their response reveals how little they cared about God's heart. But verse 32 shows us how Jesus defined the law. He says this, But I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. Jesus upheld the sanctity and the permanence of marriage in such a way that his readers, his listeners, were shocked. In Matthew 19, when he gives this same answer, his own disciples said that it's better not to marry. If that's the way it is with a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. I mean, think for a moment how shockingly arrogant that statement is. It's it's like the husband saying, okay, so she gets all this, but if she puts on some weight, if she can't cook, i got to live with her forever. A completely unbiblical view of marriage. So Jesus said that any remarriage after an unbiblical divorce is adultery, a crime punishable by death in the Old Testament. Jesus is showing that this is far more serious than they understood. And because of the greater vulnerability of the wife, Jesus says that the husband makes her commit adultery. Again, assuming that she would remarry. And if her first marriage was not biblically terminated, both she and her new husband would be guilty of adultery. It was another one of God's protections for marriage and an obstacle for divorce. But they missed God's heart completely and they missed God's design for marriage. So let's see how Jesus answered the Pharisees' question in Matthew 19, verses four through six. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus went back to when God created marriage. God made them one flesh. And what God has joined together, man should not separate. That's what Jesus is saying. The two have become one. God did that. And it has to be that way. Marriage has to be that way because it is a picture of the security, of the permanence, of the stability of our relationship with our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because God promises his people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will always be faithful to you. And he gave marriage to us as a gift so that we would see what that looks like. Godly marriages put on display our relationship with God in human form. And lust and adultery and divorce, they they disfigure, they deface that display in grotesque ways. And you know, the truth is that some marriages they distort that display of God's love even without those sins, and it's a tragedy. So do you want to see how God loves you? You want to know how much God loves you? You know, you can see it in a variety of ways, but one of the most powerful ways is in a loving relationship between a husband and his wife. In good times and in bad, in sickness and in health. What is on display when a husband quits the job that he loves to care for his bedridden wife for the last 15 years of her life? God's love for you is on display when he does that. And what's on display when a wife cares day by day, year after year, for her husband who's been debilitated by a stroke? God's love for you Is on display. Those are pictures of the kind of relationship that God wants to have with every single one of us and that Jesus made possible. Because on the cross, He dealt with our sin, the sin of all those who trust in Him. And so rather looking for ways to weaken God's laws, you and I must be fighting so that our marriages reflect that love for us to see and for others to see as well. Now I don't expect this morning there are a lot of people here who would defend divorce. Divorce is terrible. The consequences of divorce on both parties, the children, the affected, the extended families, society, they are seen every day in courtrooms, in counseling offices, and in prisons. But listen to one testimony from a woman whose husband divorced her. She wrote this. 30 years ago, I got divorced. So far, I've lived 59 years. And without a doubt, divorce was the worst season of my life. Nothing I've suffered since that time even comes close. Not a wayward child, not a stroke, not the betrayal of a close friend, not job loss, not watching the collapse of a ministry, not the death of a parent, not a root canal when the Novocaine didn't work. Absolutely nothing compares to the horrific pain of having a spouse decide I don't after saying I do. I realize there are far too many circumstances related to marriage to cover in one sermon. And many of you may be asking, well, how does this passage apply to my circumstance? How does it apply to my life right now? And so here's the bottom line. It is a matter of your heart. It's a matter of your heart. It always is. When God's word is clear about what you should do, will you do it? Or will you look for a way to relax God's law? And when God's word doesn't speak directly to your situation, will you seek him so that you can know his law and so that you can obey it? Or will you too look for ways to relax God's laws? The truth is, obedience can be painful. It can require a sacrifice that you and I aren't even sure how we can make, much less how we can live with. But it all goes, all goes back to trusting our Heavenly Father and to believing that, that His ways are better than our ways. And the plan that He has for our lives are better than anything that we could come up with. You've heard it said that God hates divorce. I believe that's true. God hates divorce because God loves people. And God loves divorced people. And I don't think there's anybody that hates divorce more than someone who's been victimized by it. And by God's grace in the church, there is hope, and there is healing, and there is love for all those who are hurting. But for those of you this morning who are contemplating an unbiblical divorce, or entering into a foolish marriage, Or in the midst of an adulterous relationship, stop. Stop. It may be the most foolish and hateful thing you will ever do. Remember, the heart of the law reveals the heart of God. And your response reveals your heart to God. So let me end with this What do you hear in this passage? Do you hear freedom? Or do you hear constraint? Do you see before you a long stretch of highway with beautiful scenery on both sides and guardrails designed to protect you? Or do you just see the guardrails? Is that all you can see when you read God's laws? God has a better way, better than lust, better than adultery, better than divorce. And while we cannot control our spouse if we're married, we can do everything with God's strength to have the kind of marriage that will reveal the love of God, to make our marriage as strong as possible. And if you're single, with God's help, you can strengthen the marriages that are around you as God enables you to. I began talking about Michael's rules and our sinful tendency to relax God's laws. But you know what the good news is? Jesus rules. Jesus rules. And so we don't have to relax God's laws. Instead, we rely on Jesus. And the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey God's laws. Not just the letter, but the Spirit. Because that's what our Heavenly Father desires for us. That joy. And with His help, we can do it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father You know each one of us personally. You know our temptations. You know our weaknesses. You know our circumstances. And so all I would ask is that in your mercy, you would not leave us in disobedience, convict us of our sin, give us hope, pour your grace upon us so that we might thoroughly obey you. We love you. Thank you in Christ's name, amen.